Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. In our series through the Gospel of Matthew entitled The Good News of God's Kingdom, we're exploring the ways that we, as disciples of Jesus, partner with God for the real, everyday advancing of His kingdom. Let's turn, if we have a Bible, uh, to the book of Mark, uh, Matthew, sorry, Matthew chapter 11, uh, 13, my goodness, I'm sorry guys, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, the reason why I was a, looked a little distracted, I did a wedding yesterday, uh, Sarah Hainzinger, most, some of you will remember Sarah Hainzinger, I had the privilege of officiating that wedding, it was a, a daytime wedding at 11 o'clock with the sun beating down on us. And while I was doing my message in the first kind of 10 minutes of the ceremony, knowing that what was to follow the message was the the vows and the exchange of rings, my iPad crashed. And uh, so the reason why I was a little distracted when I was introducing or just saying which verse to look look to was I was just making sure that my iPad was actually going to work this morning. So the Lord is good, uh, the iPad is working, and therefore the anointing is present. That's how things work these days. The anointing is here when technology works. Father, we thank you so much for just the incredible time of worship we enjoyed, Lord. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your kingdom come. Thank you for heaven on earth. Thank you that we can enjoy these times with you, Lord, knowing your nearness, knowing your closeness, knowing, Lord, that because you are in our lives, everything is going to be okay. Because you are with us and leading us, Lord God. We have hope, we have joy, we have rest, we have peace, Lord God. And I thank you that you made yourself so wonderfully known to us this morning. And continue to do that every moment of the day. My prayer, Father, my prayer for myself, for every one of us here, not just for the next half hour as we go through the word, but every moment of every day, that we would be increasingly aware of your presence that is always with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you promise never to leave us nor forsake us. And I pray, Lord God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, open the ears, Lord God, open our ears to to your quiet, still voice. We are hungry for you, hungry for you, Jesus. We pray, we ask these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Debs is uh, very, very particular when she goes to sleep at night. There is a certain set of systems that are in place in our family before Debs uh, is able to uh, rest and go to sleep. So a couple of things that have to happen in our house. The the air conditioner uh, has to be set to no less than 73 degrees in the summer because if it is is a little lower than that, it comes on too often and has the potential to wake her up. The, The door to our bedroom has to be closed, but not fully closed, just closed enough to drown out the noise of the air conditioner coming in or, or, or turning on, but just open enough to be able to hear Caden if he potentially calls out for her in the middle of the night. The, the ceiling fan in our, in our bedroom can't be set on setting higher than medium. It has to be set on medium or low because otherwise the room gets a little bit too, too windy. There is, a, there is a, a white noise fan that we have. The white noise fan cannot be on the floor because when the white noise fan is on the floor, the noise is not loud enough. It has to be on the table and it has to be set on number two. If it's set on number three or if it's moving, it starts to whistle and that's a distraction for Debs. And then perhaps most importantly is the coffee has to be set for 5.15 in the morning so that she can wake up at 5.15 and smell the aroma of coffee and the first thing she does after climbing out of bed is to pour a cup of coffee. So that's, that's my wife at night 
That's her, that's her procedure. That's, that's what happens every evening in the Sudworth household before, before we go to bed. Of that entire list, the most important thing is the white noise fan. So the white noise fan is the most important thing. And Debs has become an absolute expert at knowing what setting or what position the white noise fan needs to be at in order for it not to whistle or not to rattle. Because that defeats the object of a white noise fan. The white noise fan is meant to produce this familiar hum in the background that distracts you, not wakes you up with a start in the middle of the night. And it's actually, it's actually a bit of a challenge, not so much... Uh, at, at our house at night, but when we travel, when we go to, to other cities, uh, perhaps an air conditioner in the hotel room is too loud, so that's a real challenge. Or, or sometimes, like last week in Canada, we were staying in a small town, in a small house, and it was deathly quiet. So it was, it was, there was no noise, but you see, no noise is not good, because no noise is distracting in and of itself. So just sharing a little bit of my challenges and complexities that are there that I face. I tell you that humorous story to, to kind of introduce to you what I want to share about today and the challenge that I sometimes face, uh, and it's to do with that white noise fan. Sometimes, if I'm honest, truths about Jesus, truths about God and his kingdom, or even truths in God's word can sometimes, to me, become like that white noise fan. They can become things that I'm awfully familiar with, things that I've become almost indifferent to because I've heard that truth maybe a thousand times over. It might have changed me once. It might have challenged me at one point, but I've, I've learned how to make the adjustments. I've learned how to make the changes. And so that truth or that aspect of God's character becomes something of a familiar hum in the background rather than the life-changing truth that it has become. We've got Aiden and Eloise in the city, uh, as you guys know, and on their first Friday that, that they were with us, we wanted to show them a little bit of downtown. So we went out for dinner, and then we drove a very familiar route, a route that we take all of our out-of-town friends along to show them the city. So coming from the north, we, we drove through the Gold Coast to show them some of the magnificent homes that none of us will ever live in, and uh, drove them through the Gold Coast and then onto the magnificent mile. Um, it was a perfect night. A couple of Fridays ago, maybe about 75, 70 degrees, about 8.30 at night, there was a, like a dark blue kind of hint to the, to, to, to the sky coloring, beautiful night, a long magnificent mile um, to uh, Roosevelt and then around Soldier Field to the museum campus, and then you know the view from the planetarium when you're kind of looking back on the city across, across the harbor, I mean, it's absolutely breathtaking. And, uh, and then back along Lakeshore Drive. So that's a very familiar route that we, that we take our friends on. But what was so different about this particular trip was Aidan and Eloise's incredible joy and, and, and exclamation at everything they saw, at every intersection. It was, oh my goodness, did you, did you see that? And, and that the next intersection, oh my word, I've never seen anything like this in all my life. Their cameras, their iPhones were literally, smoke was coming out of them. They were uh, uh, taking so many photographs. And then when we turned the corner and parked the car by the planetarium to look over the harbor and over the city, I mean, it was just, they were literally falling over themselves. To, to, with excitement. And, and, and the reason I tell you that story is, is this. It is very possible to, become, to know something very well, but still be excited about something. And that's what their excitement did to me. 
Their excitement got me excited for the city. Their, their joy and their, their absolute like, amazement at things, got, it actually arrested me out of that place of things becoming familiar and ho-hum. I think sometimes when we live in a city like this, we can see what others view as amazing. We can see them as just ordinary. And that, to me, describes something of, at times, the journey I'm on when it comes to the truth of God's Word. Sometimes we can become very familiar with God's Word. Sometimes when, uh, it's a little test that I sometimes use, when people come to me and they are sharing a, a revelation or, a, or an insight into God's Word or, a, or an experience they've had with God. You know, maybe someone is, is understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the first time or speaking about God's grace. I often ask myself this question, am I getting excited with them? Even though I'm familiar, even though I know these subjects well, am I getting excited with them? Do I want a deeper experience and interaction with God? Or is my heart saying, well, I've been there. I've done that. I've got nothing really to learn. You see, when I become indifferent, when I become a little apathetic or a little hardened to God's word, then I know that God's word is becoming like that white noise fan. It's becoming a little too familiar. Maybe you guys can relate to something of what I've just shared. Maybe not the specific stories that I've shared about Debs or Aidan and Eloise, but, but maybe you guys know what it's like at times to become a little familiar or a little indifferent or a little maybe even hardened to some of the truths of God's Word. Maybe you guys know what it's like to, to once be changed and challenged by a particular truth, but then at, over the course of your walk with the Lord, over the course of your life, that truth is no longer the, 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 the jewel that it once was. It no longer carries the same weight, the, no longer carries the same power that it once did. At Church in the City, we talk a lot about Jesus is King and the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of Jesus. And can I say, the reason why we talk about it a lot is not because we want to give it lots of airtime, but because the scriptures give it lots of airtime. But I think when we speak and teach about a subject a lot, sometimes it's possible to become indifferent towards that subject. Oh, I know about the kingdom. I've heard teaching on the kingdom. I know what the kingdom is all about. Don't, I've got nothing new to learn. I've experienced the kingdom. I'm, I, I, I'm, I, I, I know the kingdom of God. And our hearts can very easily become familiar with and then indifferent to the truths around the kingdom. It's my responsibility today to close the series on Matthew. And the series on Matthew has been about Jesus the King and the kingdom of God. We've been preaching about the good news of God's kingdom. Matthew, the book of Matthew, most commentators say, is a commentary, is a, is a foundations manual that, that has been used in the early church in order to train and equip God's people on how to live in the kingdom. So the last 12 weeks, we've spent very specifically looking at truths around Jesus being king and the kingdom. And as I was asking the Lord, how does he want me to close up the series, I, I feel to encourage us with a very simple word. And it's going to be in the form of a question. How do we avoid well, all that we've taught over the last 12 weeks? How do we avoid that just put it, being put into the box of familiar teaching? How do we make sure that the things we've learned about God's kingdom are things that we are willing, even if we've heard them preached a thousand times, willing to allow those truths to truly change and adjust our hearts? 
Let me ask the question a slightly different way. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, blessed are those who not only hear the word of God, but obey the word of God as well. I'm sure you are familiar with that, 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 that verse or that concept or that idea. I think sometimes we can sit uh, under a sermon on a Sunday or, or listen to a sermon on the, uh, you know, on the radio or on our iPad or iPod or, or, or even spend time with God in His Word. And we come away from that time and, and we say, oh, I was so blessed by that teaching or I was so blessed by that truth. But I want to ask us the question, were you really blessed by that truth? You see, because Luke 11 tells us that the requirement for blessing is not just hearing God's Word, but it's obeying God's Word as well. And so the question I want to put to us as we bring the series on Matthew to a close is, how do we make sure that the last 12 weeks of teaching is not just kind of that blessed me, but how do we make sure that we actually embrace the truth, embrace what was taught, and put it into action so that we can truly see kingdom impact and kingdom change and transformation? And I think to answer that question Matthew chapter 13 is a, is a great place for us to look for some wisdom from Scripture. And that's what we're going to look at. If, we, if you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13, we're going to read a couple of verses, six verses from verse 53 to verse 58. There's a very similar account of this passage when Jesus returns back to his hometown. Very similar passage in Mark chapter 6, where Mark gives us very similar information with a few little additions. So I'm going to read from Matthew 13, but throw in a few little comments from Mark's version of the events as well. So if you can follow along on the screen behind me or in your Bibles in front of you. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Mark says they were astonished. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there. Mark goes on to say, Except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He did not do many miracles there because of their lack of of faith. And Mark adds the, the phrase, he was astonished. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. So word about Jesus had spread. It had word about Jesus had got back to his, his hometown. Jesus wasn't coming back as a quote unquote stranger. They knew who Jesus was and they had heard from the things that he had been preaching and, and doing, they had heard ab- about this Jesus that was coming back to his hometown. Matthew tells us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says these words, that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And this authority was, was backed up by Jesus moving with signs, wonders, and miracles. I love the fact that Jesus was so confident in who he was. He was so assured of who he was, sent from the Father, confident in being perfectly filled by the Holy Spirit, 
teaching the word of God and knowing that the things he was teaching was absolutely God's truth. And all of that resulted in in Jesus moving and ministering with unrivaled authority. And so it's into this context, it's into this mix that Jesus returns back to his hometown of Nazareth. Verse 54 says, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. They were astonished. They realized that the Jesus they had heard about from from other towns was the Jesus that was coming back to them. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They're asking with awe. They're asking with amazement. But then immediately after that, things begin to shift. It's almost as if, and, and Matthew doesn't record this, but it's almost as if they ask themselves, wait a minute, we, we recognize this guy. Wait a minute, we know who Jesus is. Look at verse 55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? And in these verses, we start to, we start to get a, a glimpse of how illogical unbelief actually is. You see, right before their eyes and, and, and confirming the things they had heard about Jesus was, was Jesus preaching with authority and releasing signs, wonders, and miracles. And they saw it before their eyes, but they couldn't get past the Jesus that they thought they knew. There was something in their hearts that wasn't prepared to learn something that they didn't know. I want you to remember that. There was something in their hearts that prevented them from learning or being willing to learn something that they didn't yet already know. And immediately, hardness begins to grab hold of their hearts. Look at how they refer to Jesus. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Now you, I I, I certainly have, when I've read that before, I've often glossed over the implications of that statement. They go on the very next line to say, isn't his mother's name Mary? Now now that seems rather innocuous at first reading, but you've got to remember, friends, this is an incredibly, fiercely patriarchal culture where everyone, everyone standing in culture is in relation to who their father was. You read the genealogy of Jesus, and there hardly is a mention of a woman. It's, it's the man, it's the father, it's the grandfather, it's the great-grandfather. Your, your, your position and culture and society was determined by who your father and your father's father was. And here they're like, isn't this that carpenter's son? This is that scandal we heard about 30 years ago, where Mary claimed that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And if you come from a small town like I do, you know that scandals from the past don't get easily forgotten. Very easily, very quickly, they remind themselves of this scandal of, of who Jesus was, that carpenter's son, that, that bastard son of Mary's. And their hearts immediately change. Look, they ask the same question again. Look at verse 56, this, this, the last question in verse 56. It's the same question they had asked just a few verses earlier. Where then did this man get all these things? But now all of a sudden, can you, can you tell the, the unbelief and the hardness of heart hanging on each and every one of those words? From excitement and intrigue and, 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 and a desire to learn to suddenly, wait a minute, we know who this Jesus is. We've got nothing to learn from him. Where did he get these things from? That's what's happened in their hearts. 
What causes unbelief? I think the simple answer to that is familiarity. Familiarity causes unbelief. They claimed to know Jesus. They thought they were experts in Jesus. And you, if there's one thing we know about experts, generally experts don't think they have anything else to learn. And that's who these people claim to be. We are experts in Jesus. And the result of the unbelief was what? They took offense at Jesus. Look at verse 57. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And their offense caused them to miss out on the very move of God. God was moving powerfully through his son Jesus. There were, there were mighty miracles, signs, wonders, preaching with authority. Read chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Matthew. Go back to in our series and, and look again at how powerfully Jesus was ministering and moving in signs, wonders, and miracles. But his hometown missed out on the move of God because of unbelief and because of taking an offense against who Jesus was. Look at verse 58. And he did not do many miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people. And heal them because of their lack of faith. I said earlier that the book of Mark actually adds the words, Jesus could not do miracles there. Jesus could not do miracles there. What is Mark getting at? Is this, what, what, is, what is this inability of Jesus to, to not be able to do any miracles. I mean, we, we've read so many gospel stories, haven't we, where, where, where Jesus encounters people of, of ranging degrees of faith, from great faith to, to very, very little faith. In fact, Jesus says, if you just had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you would be able to, 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 to say to that mountain, be cast into the ocean. Jesus is not offended by little faith, but Jesus is, is unable to move with his unbelief. And that's the distinction that I want you to see here, friends. Jesus is not coming up against little faith. Little faith doesn't bother Jesus. There's a great story where, where a father comes to Jesus because of his son, and, and, and he says these words, and I love these words because these often are my words. Jesus, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't cast him aside. Jesus, Jesus moves in response to that little bit of faith. But it's in this place of unbelief, it's in this place of offense where Jesus could not do any miracles. Not could not as in Jesus is unable, it's impossible, but could not in the sense that it wouldn't be appropriate in the context or the atmosphere of unbelief. And here's why it wouldn't be appropriate, friends. Signs, wonders, and miracles, the power of God has a context, and the context of signs, wonders, and miracles is a relationship of love and trust. You see, Jesus isn't like Iron Man, uh, in the sense that, that Iron Man just, you know, petulantly at times, occasionally, just for, the, just for the fun of it, performs some amazing feat. And, and I've been quite comforted to see Iron Man's maturity over the, over the various Avenger movies that we've seen. If you've followed Iron Man like I have, I'm a huge superhero fan. I remember the first Iron Man when he's stuck in the mountains of, of Afghanistan and, and he builds himself an iron, that suit and, and he comes out with great bravado and occasionally he just for the fun of it, he'll shoot into the sky and then come down and 
say, look how impressive I am. You see, Jesus doesn't do that. Signs, wonders, and miracles aren't just these petulant kind of occasional acts of mercy that Jesus does just to impress people. Jesus is moving in response and in the context of a, of a relationship of love and trust and faith, where people are looking to Jesus, albeit with, with, with still developing love, but looking to Jesus and saying, there's somebody that I can trust. You see, into that context, that creates an environment for the supernatural to move. But when there's offense, when there's hardness of heart, when we become experts in Jesus, we have little to learn. Jesus becomes predictable, and our hearts begin to close to Jesus. That word offense in the original Greek is a, is a fascinating word. It's, it's where we get the English word scandal from. And it literally means a, a stumbling block. It literally means a, a boulder in the road that is, that is a stumbling block that prevents a person who is on a journey from fulfilling their journey because the stumbling block is in the way. Another variation of that word used in the original Greek is, um, is it, it, it's, a, it's a trap that ensnares somebody. So think about those traps um, that, you know, it's, it's camouflaged and there's normally a little stick that holds up the, the, the trap. I'm really doing a very bad job. I'm not an outdoorsman, so I, I have no idea how this actually works, but I've seen it on National Geographic. So you know like the little trap is here and there's a stick and then the, the animal or the person kind of accidentally knocks that stick and the, the trap grabs hold of their leg. That stick is in the Greek the word scandalon, which is the word offense. It's the stick that, that causes the trap to ensnare the person. So think about that in the context of what Jesus is saying. Think about these Nazarenes who were supposedly experts on Jesus, and they are, they are following a path based on their supposed expertise of Jesus. And suddenly they encounter Jesus that is beyond their understanding, a Jesus who preaches with authority, a Jesus who moves with signs, wonders, and miracles, and it doesn't fit their paradigm. And it's as if they encounter the stumbling block. It's as if they, they set this trap off and it ensnares them and it prevents them from growing in their understanding of who Jesus is. That's what that word offense means, friends. And that's the essence of what I want to encourage us with as we speak, have spoken about the, the truth of the kingdom of God and as we will continue in years to come to speak about Jesus being king and the, and the advancing of his kingdom Don't become an expert in Jesus like these Nazarenes became. Here's the point that I want you to grab hold of. An expert's expertise leaves very little room for faith. An expert's expertise leaves very little room for faith. And so my exhortation to us as a church, my exhortation to myself is not to become an expert in Jesus. Because when we become an expert in Jesus, we start to put him in a box. We start to create a paradigm for him. And when he moves and ministers, as he tends to do outside of our understanding of who he is, suddenly it shocks us. And if we're not careful, we can take offense. We can become ensnared by, the, by, that, by that trap. And we aren't able to move into all that God has for us. Don't become an expert in Jesus. This truth is humorously but tragically outplayed in that uh, rather 
I'm a little nervous to use this example, but that, that movie that I, I actually did find quite funny, Talladega Nights with Ricky Bobby, you know that, that I'm, I'm treading nervously, I hope I'm not offending anyone by using this analogy, but, but Ricky Bobby, he's, he's praying a prayer, you know, he's blessing the food, and, and he's like, you know, dear little baby Jesus, you know, and then he goes off on this, on this really inappropriate um, grace. And, and, but here's what happens, here's what happens, his, his friend says, no, 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 wait, Ricky Bobby, he, uh, Jesus was a man. Jesus had a beard. And these were Ricky Bobby's words. He says, no, no, I like the little baby Jesus version. I like the little baby Jesus version. And it got me thinking, what version of Jesus do you like? What version of Jesus do you like? Do you like the version of Jesus that's, that's safe and sound, that, that, is, that is little baby, maybe even little baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes? You see, that little baby Jesus can't come as the, riding ki- as the king riding on a horse with, 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 with fire coming out of his eyes. And, and on, his, on his thigh is tattooed the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, if, if, our, if our version of Jesus is little baby Jesus, then Jesus, the almighty king, will be a scandal to us. We can take offense. Is there room in your version of Jesus for the Jesus of the scriptures to get into your heart? As we've been teaching over the past 13 weeks, and I'm not going to go through it blow by blow, but I want to just highlight a couple of, of, of aspects of the person of Jesus that, we, that we've learned about and ask you the question, is there space in your version of Jesus for things like the audacious and, and, and scandalous truth of grace? Or does your Jesus, is, is your Jesus a Jesus of rules and rituals? Is there space in your understanding of Jesus for, for, grace, for, for, for grace to be outpoured because of the unconditional love of God, no matter how we live or how we behave? And even saying that sounds incredibly scandalous, but that's what the scriptures teach. You and I who are believers in Jesus are placed in the perfect Son of God. And that's what gives us access into the presence of the Father. In your version of Jesus, is there space and room to hear the voice of Him speaking to you? Or do you believe that the only way that we can hear Jesus is from His Word? And friends, I am not saying that, that additional revelation supersedes this. This Word was not given to us to take away the reality of hearing God's voice. This Word was given to us so that when we hear God's voice, we can submit it to the truth of Scripture and know that what God is saying is actually God. This is never meant to take away that, that intimate, close relationship of Jesus being able to speak through dreams and visions and prophetic words and, and, and a sense of the, the Holy Spirit stirring truth in our heart. Is there room in, that, in your version of Jesus for that? Is there room in your version of Jesus to, to, to know that the way we have victory against the enemy is not through shouting and screaming and commanding and all of these things, but simply knowing that when we stand firm in the Lord and in the power of His might, we have victory over the devil because we are found in Him. Does your version of Jesus allow for the baptism of the Holy Spirit? 
Does your version of Jesus allow for the reality that Jesus as a man depended on, relied upon, needed the outpouring of the Spirit of God to enable him to do all that he was called to do? And likewise, Jesus said, Mark Mark, uh, actually mentioned it, Jesus said the same thing in Acts chapter 1, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. You will be baptized from on high in order to to be my witness. Does your version of Jesus allow for the infilling and empowering and leading of the Holy Spirit? Does your version of Jesus allow for the importance of godly character? Or are you so into grace that character is unimportant? You see, friends, grace doesn't nullify the importance of character. Grace calls us to greater godly character. When I mess up, friends, uh, being an American citizen now, when I mess up, when I break a law, well, not when, sorry, if I were to break a law, if I were to do something wrong, the South African police don't fly over here to come and arrest me. I'm no longer a citizen of South Africa. I'm a citizen of this nation. And heaven forbid that I ever do anything wrong that requires the FBI to come after me, but it would be the FBI that would come after me. Sometimes we think when we mess up, we need a little bit of law and legalism to pull us right. No. Law and legalism is not your your realm. It's not your kingdom. It's not the place where you live. You've been delivered from law and legalism. What comes after you when you mess up is grace. Grace gets a hold of your heart and says, and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Grace makes me realize that I'm no longer that which I once was. But I am not just a changed person. I am a different person. I'm not that old man. And neither are you, man or woman. Does your version of Jesus allow for that? The kingdom of God to outwork itself from in here outwards. Does your version of Jesus allow for healing? Does your version of Jesus allow for the supernatural? You see, Matthew 8 and Matthew 9 teaches that, that Jesus, it starts off Matthew 8 with Jesus saying, I am willing to heal, and ends off in Matthew 9, Jesus says, I am able to heal. And in between are incredible uh, accounts of Jesus moving in power. Friends, Jesus is both willing and able to heal. It's one thing to be willing and not able, or able and not willing if you're struggling to pay the rent and, you, go to, and you, you need someone to help you out and you go to your best friend who is equally in financial crisis as you are, oh, would you help me? Oh, I would totally help you if I was able. Or maybe you go to a businessman and you knock on his door and you say, I need rent. Are you able to help me? Oh, yes, I'm able, but I'm not willing. You see, Jesus is both willing and able to heal. Is there room in your paradigm of Jesus for that truth? Is is there room in your paradigm of Jesus for local church? You see, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus calls disciples to himself. And he says, says, come, come to me. Matthew 10 starts off, Jesus called the 12 to himself, and then he commissioned them. You see, sometimes in our busy culture, in in the city in which we live, we're all about the doing. We're all about the, give me a commission, Lord. Give me a thing to do. But it's got to come from that place of being drawn into the presence of Jesus first. You see, being in his presence has got to far supersede the doing for Jesus. The doing is good, but the being is where it starts. 
And we, we are called and commissioned together in community. Does your paradigm of Jesus mean that it's just you and him? Or does your paradigm of Jesus allow for community and local church and, and working things out and, and, and honoring and caring and learning from one another? I need to bring us into a land. Two little things to end off with. Maybe I can ask the worship team if you wouldn't mind coming up. I'd love for us to end off with a, with a song. Two things that I'm going to end off with. Two little ways. How do we avoid becoming experts? How do we avoid becoming experts in the things of God? Remember what I said earlier. Experts have no room to learn anything. How do we avoid becoming experts in the things of God? How do we make room for faith? Two things. Firstly, preach the gospel of grace to yourself daily. Preach the gospel of grace to yourself daily. Don't ever, I implore you, I, I, as much as I can implore you, don't allow the gospel of grace to become old hat. Don't get familiar with the audacious truth that God reached out from heaven and put his hand upon you and rescued you from the life of destruction that you were in. And by his grace, pulled you out of that and transferred you into the kingdom of the son he loves. I want to implore you to, to read about it and reflect on it. I implore you to pray, oh, pray that over it, release it, declare it over your life. I want to encourage you to, to worship God because of his amazing grace. When I first got saved, I was taught, you know how you first get saved? Often those are the things that you, you remember the most. And I remember being taught by somebody two things that I needed to put into place when I had devotion, devotional times. And, and I've realized how destructive they, those things had become. They, they were well-meaning words of encouragement, but, but for many years actually pulled me away from the incredible understanding of God's grace. I was taught this. Never start a devotional time until you first read the word because God must have the first ability to speak to you rather than you speak to God. And the second thing I learned was always start your devotional times with repentance because if you don't repent, you're not, it's not gonna clear the way to be able to gain access into God's presence. And for years, my devotional times would just be dogged, hard effort, trying to understand this gospel of grace, but feeling like I never matched up until I, someone taught me about the, the, the beauty of worship. I start my devotional times just worshiping God every single morning. I don't have a great voice, but I just quietly, because I have to be quiet because everyone's sleeping in the house, quietly sit on the upstairs sofa, and I just lift my hands and I begin to declare the goodness and the grace of God. I begin to worship Jesus. Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all that I seek. And when this child is, I can't even remember how the words go. Your, your, your grace is, is, is all I, I, I mean, I'm messing it up, but just enjoying, just worshiping Jesus. And in that place, friends, from understanding grace, then I'm eager and willing to repent. 
then I'm quick to say, Lord, in the context of what you've done and how great you are, Lord, this this thing that I messed up with, Lord, would you forgive me? Why? Because the, the atmosphere of grace is set. Preach the gospel of grace to yourself daily. And the second thing I want to say, friends, is follow Jesus closely. Choose to do that. Even when it hurts. Even when it doesn't make sense. We need to settle that. That God has called us to follow His Son closely. And we're not going to be experts about every situation. We're not going to know why we have to go through some of the things we have to go through. But if we've settled that decision that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I'm going to tuck in as close as I know how, no matter what happens, then we create an openness for the Lord to lead us along the paths that He chooses to lead us. We don't understand everything about following God. But friends, can I say this as we bring this into land? We are a nation that loves to submit ourselves to principles. And principles generally don't work when the going gets tough. We are called to submit ourselves to a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Come, Jesus says in Matthew 11. Anyone who is weary and burdened, come to me and find rest. Mark mentioned it out of, verse, uh, out of Psalm 34. Psalm 34 doesn't say, know that the Lord is good. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Exodus 33, Moses cries out. He doesn't say, Lord, Teach me your ways. He says, Lord, show me your ways. It's about relationship. It's about intimacy. When Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. So often we latch on to that. My grace is sufficient for you. But the words before that are the most important. He said to me. What is God saying to you? Not a principle, not three steps to get to financial freedom, not five ways to a better marriage, not five steps to deal with anxiety and depression. Submit yourself to the person of Jesus. Come to Him, those who are weary. John 7, if anyone, if anyone is thirsty, what? Let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow refreshing rivers of living water. I'm in that place this week. I'm going to be honest. I'm thirsty. I'm desperately thirsty for the goodness and grace of God to be poured out of my life. And I'm going to be standing after this sermon asking for God to pour out rivers of living water. And I want to invite you to join me. If you are here today and you are thirsty, you are saying, Jesus, I just need more of you. I want to invite you to stand.
right now, if you can. Just stand right now. If you are saying, Jesus, I'm desperate, desperate for more of you. I'm thirsty. I'm, I'm in a dry place. Maybe not the, the entire part of your life, but some aspect of your life, there's a dryness to it. Can I ask you just to open your hands? I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask Aiden and Nancy to lead us in uh, maybe your, your kingdom come. And as we begin to worship the Lord, I want you to stay in that place of just receiving. Father, as people are, including myself, just coming before you, Lord, we are a thirsty people. We are a people desperate for your presence, desperate for the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge, Lord God, that we, we cannot even take one step outside of your presence. We need you, Lord. We need you, Jesus. And we come before you just as your word says. We, we come to you, Jesus, just as your word says. You say, anyone who's thirsty, let him come to me. We come to you this morning, Jesus. And we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us. That you would drench us with, with your power, Lord God. Drench, drench us with your closeness and your nearness. Lord, may a, may a dew fall upon us. May a, may a, 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 a dew just re- come upon us this morning, Lord God. We ask in Jesus' name. May we be enveloped by that closeness and nearness and tenderness and love and mercy and grace of the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. We are, we are desperate for you. Desperate for you, Lord. I literally prayed this morning to the Lord. Thank you that my walk with you does not have to be a Groundhog Day. You know that movie, The Groundhog Day, where the same thing happens again and again. The reason I can say that is because the Bible says God's mercy is new every morning. And so let's just receive the mercies of God. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this gospel of grace, that your grace and your mercy is new every morning, that your faithfulness is great that your love endures forever. Oh, Lord, fill us this morning. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your mercy. Fill us with your grace. Fill us with your presence, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. You can always check out more messages at churchinthecity.us or on iTunes.